I've got a couple opening statements, I guess, if you want to call them that, uh, that'll help guide us through the conversation that is going to take place today. But I also want to tell you this, um, because I didn't want to speak for two and a half hours without a break, we're only covering four of the seals in Revelation 6 today, and we'll break it down to two parts, okay? Um, the title of today's message is Jesus the Judge. So today will be part one. We'll cover the four, um, the first four seals that happen in the first eight verses of Revelation 6. And then next week we will cover the other seals that remain unbroken until we read about them. Um, the Lamb is the one who opens these seals. So I want to say to you something about the Lamb imagery that John uses briefly. A lamb doesn't have the ability to open a scroll, okay? We've talked about this, but I just want to remind you, without hands or thumbs, he, uh, an animal does not have the ability. Now, could there be a supernatural thing where he just looked at it and the seals broke? Sure, but just so that you understand, it's kind of like when you, when you have a vision, it's kind of like a dream. Your dream does not always conform to your earthly reality, so visions don't have to conform to your earthly reality either. Um, this is really important because I believe John is seeing Jesus, who he earlier in his gospel has called when he, well, when he wrote the gospel about John's baptism of Jesus, he says that John the Baptist looked up and said, behold, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So it's very possible that these two things are right there at the same time. It's not far-fetched to imagine that Jesus is standing there, but John is referring to him as the lamb. So just understand visions don't have to conform to your earthly reality. When you read about a vision in the Bible, or if you've ever had the benefit or uh, spiritual moment of having a, or a spiritual experience of having an actual vision, then you understand that these things don't always match up. I've had some strange dreams before where like the president was in the room, all my ex-girlfriends and my wife. That's not the reality I want to live with. Okay, I say all like there's more than two, but it's fine. <clears throat> anyway, just understand when you're reading visions, you have to look through some of those elements. Okay, the second uh, note that I'm going to give you today is regarding the four living creatures. Many of the Bible translations call them beasts. The reason why I specifically um, have, I really like the ESV version. But the reason why I continue to call them creatures, not only is because they're read that way in the English Standard Version, but because that helps us separate them from beasts. When we think of a beast, we think of something that is terrible, terrifying, you know, something that brings terror, if you will. So the four living creatures, though, may correspond to the four cardinal directions. So if you say, Pastor, it's been a while, I don't know what you're talking about. Cardinal directions are north, south, east, and west, okay? The throne imagery throughout the Old Testament as well as in other ancient Near Eastern uh, religions at that time, had beasts that formed the foundation of the throne. 
So if you'll imagine this, this table right here, if it were to be a seat or the chair you're sitting in has four legs, four different directions. Okay. So something to just be thinking about as we read through this today. The next thing that I wanted to say that will help us is, uh, Many Bible translations have headings above Revelation chapter 6. How many of you are looking at the top of Revelation 6 right now in your Bible? Okay. How many of you raise your hand and tell me, does the heading that's written there say the seven seals? Okay, it does. So there are many different Bible translations out there. Um, I, I will tell you this, what I say often is read one that's easy for you to understand. Okay. I don't want to hate against any specific version. I've had a couple texts recently um, asking me about you know my experience with different versions so that they could pick a new version of the Bible to read. Here's what I tell people. Compare them and make sure that whatever you're reading is easy for you to understand. Because you also need to remember those passage headings or titles, as well as chapter and verse breakdowns, that stuff is not inspired by God. That's a man-made thing. Why do I say that? Because Revelation 6 only has six seals. If you read through the entire thing, Revelation chapter eight is when the seventh seal gets opened. So it's just, I, I don't want you to be confused when you look through and read the Bible. I want you to understand that those, those little markings at the top or even anything in your margin that's written by someone else, a, a human, uh, it is not divinely inspired. Okay. It only has six seals in Revelation six. The next thing to know before we jump into verse one is this, that as we work through this passage and continue through this series, you need to understand that Jesus is a judge. He is not just a judge, but he is the judge. He is a judge who judges righteously. He judges for redemptive purposes and he judges for judicial purposes. He's not pictured. I, I don't serve, I don't want to get too off my notes here today, but I don't serve a sissy Jesus. That was three people that thought they heard me. I don't serve a sissy Jesus. Can I get an amen? Okay, he was a man's man, carpenter hands, okay, while he was here on earth. He is not a meek and mild lamb that just got, you know, murdered without, as being a victim, if you will. I need you to understand that he is no longer, at this point in Revelation, he will no longer be looking like the meek and mild lamb that looks like it's been injured and hurt, but now it's standing. He is a warrior, he is a judge, a conquering king, and he is righteous in all that he does. So we need to understand these things because the bottom line is this, as we go through this passage specifically, Jesus is the one who launches an all-out war on the world. We've talked a little bit, but actually a lot of bit, about the sovereignty of God recently, but I need you to really try to reconcile 
The Jesus that we're speaking of, yes, he is filled with love, grace, truth, mercy, kindness, goodness, all of those things. But in these moments that we're about to read, as well as the entire Testament of Scripture, in the Old and in the New, talk about God's wrath. So uh, these are important subjects to discuss as we start to discover the text. Go with me to chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, and we'll read about this first of the seven seals. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, Come. Verse 2, it says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. I'll highlight a few specific words that I think are important. We'll talk about the bow and the crown in a second. But he came out conquering, which would have been in John's view, present tense in that moment, as well as future, to conquer. Thus, he's going to conquer. So... In ancient days, in ancient times, kings, when they would come back from war, when they would experience a victory, they would come and parade through the streets, the military would parade through the streets, and oftentimes the kings would ride on a white horse. So there's some significance to the coloring of each of these horses, and we'll talk about what some of those possibilities are. But I want you to know that the bow represents a weapon of war. It was not a, not a staff to walk with, not a walking stick. It's a bow. He's loaded up with a weapon of war. And his crown is a sign of authority. The Bible says there in verses 1 and 2 that it was given to him in that moment. They saw, John saw a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Uh, many people, listen to me closely today because we're talking about some of the weird stuff, okay? Many people and end times enthusiasts, that's people that buy every book that comes onto the bestseller list about the end of the world, they're quick to assume that this first horse and rider are Jesus himself. People who do that have Revelation 19 in their mind, so they've skipped ahead a little bit, read ahead a little bit, because in Revelation 19, a white horse appears And a rider is on that horse who is Jesus. He's given several different titles. Among them are faithful, true. He's also called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Revelation chapter 19, this would be at the culmination of human history. But I would suggest to you that the white horse and rider of Revelation 6 are not the same as Jesus in Revelation 19. I do not believe that this rider is Jesus. And I'll give you several reasons why. The lamb still has seals to open. I'm just using my brain as I read God's word. But the lamb has just gotten the first seal open. So if he rides out on the first horse, who is opening these other seals? Okay, so we've, we've got to have that kind of idea in our minds. Secondarily, you might get caught up with the idea of, or the imagery of him having a crown. 
Well, Jesus surely has a crown. Yes, he does, but you can't get thrown off by that either because we've read in the first five chapters, there are elders in heaven, there are living creatures, there are saints given crowns. The Bible says that you can be given a crown of righteousness, that you can be given a crown of life. John's just referenced it in the letters to the churches in chapters one and two, where he said, endure to the end and you will receive a crown. So don't let the crown throw you off. I just want you to make sure that you don't read into scripture something that isn't there. Everybody got it? Say got it. Okay. We've got to resist the temptation. Listen to me. I'm slowing down my caffeine output. Settling my heart rate. We've got to understand that our theology must be formed by the Bible and we must not read our theology into the Bible. Because as we go through this, you've been raised in different settings and environments. Some of you unchurched for a long period of time. Some of you Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, anything you can name. You've been, you've grown up with some sort of understanding, myself included. I was born, like the joke is my mom barely took Sunday service off to go to the hospital and have me. I was raised under the pew. Okay, getting kicked if I made a noise like they didn't have a nursery back then. Um, I understand my wife. She's of the same religious upbringing. Her parents are the exact same denomination and fellowship that we currently are, that my parents were. So we've been raised with this um, understanding or uh, idea of exactly the chronology of end time events. But the problem is if I just take whatever anybody said to me and I don't actually look at God's word for what it says, then I might not have the right thought. Does that make sense? So I want, I want you to be clear on that. Um, you can't, here's a cultural statement for today, if there ever was one. You cannot make the Bible say something it doesn't. And you cannot disregard something that it does say. We've got to be careful when we read God's word. And it doesn't take a theological degree. You don't have to go to years of seminary in order to be a student of the Bible. In fact, I know of several who are here today who are part of our church who love God's word and chew through it. I mean, are real students of God's word. And I'm so proud to have people like that represented in our church. I wish, or I would say like old old pastors would say in the old school, I would to God. That all of you would be studious when it comes to God's word. Again, I don't want it to sound condescending when I say this. I've said it recently and I will continue to repeat it. Let me say it like this. God wants you to use your brain when you read his word. He really does. Okay, let's go to verse three and four. So we've read about the white, uh, white horse and the rider who goes out with the weapon of war. Now in verse three, we're introduced to the next seal and the next rider and the next horse. Verse three, it says this, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. I want you to stop there and pay close attention as we read through this 
because oftentimes a speaker in Revelation will not be named. We're going to find a few names throughout our reading today, but you need to hear exactly what is happening. The second living creature says, come, and verse four, and out came another horse. This one was bright red, and its rider was permitted, allowed, given permission to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So white can represent many things, but we understand it in the term of, uh, in the sense of purity and victory for that first conquering horseman that goes out. The color red, there are many different thoughts about it, but essentially the color of our what we believe human blood, you know, the idea of anger and that sort of thing. It's red hot. It's red. So there's this horse that comes out and it says here that the rider is given another weapon of war. The sword being a weapon of war, it is not an emblem of peace. So Jesus is the one who's authorizing these things to take place. God himself has allowed these things to happen. And now this second rider comes out and is given permission to take peace from the earth, which allows people, I know this sounds grotesque, but allows people to slaughter one another. And this is God's judgment and his wrath being unleashed on the world. I caution you, And I will say it again later in this message when I read it in my notes. But I'll caution you right here, right now. When I said that about your end time system, if you come to these seals and you say, oh, well, it's going to be a real bad day for all them people because I'm going to be out of here. The text doesn't support that thought whatsoever. Revelation 6 does not begin with, and so God in his kindness took all believers off the face of the earth before any of the bad stuff happened. So that's a challenge, because I was, I was raised with an understanding that I'm not going to really suffer, <laughs> which sounds great, doesn't it? Wouldn't you come, just you, Jericho? Okay, two, do I have the rest of us? Doesn't it sound great to not suffer any of this? This is God's judgment and his wrath being exercised or poured out on the world. When peace is absent, when it is taken, chaos ensues. The depravity of man, and I I say man, just humankind, our depraved nature in the absence of peace will cause murder, violence, death, all of these things. Also, please don't jump to a conclusion and say, yes, these are the days that we're living in. They're not this bad yet, okay? People's free will has not been removed, but but with the absence of peace, it will lead them to essentially to slaughter and kill one another. So the writer's given permission to take peace from the earth, and this is something as well that we really need to key in on. God has given permission for this moment, this experience, this thing to occur, this event where peace is removed. God is the instigator of these events. 
So when we think about the sovereignty of God, we must understand he is the one who is allowing these things to take place. Now, if you were God, you would do it differently, I know. But since you're not, he gets to do it the way he wants to. There's a reason, there's a methodology, there is, there is process behind the God of all the earth, all wise, all knowing, who decides that this is okay. And then we, as people of the word and people of the spirit, need to be reconciling that image of God as being loving, but also just at the same time. So verse five and six say this. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Verse six says, this is why I want you to pay attention. No other voice has spoken right now except for the one calling and the the rider coming out kind of thing. Now verse 6 says this, John says, And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, which is a, a monetary unit, it actually represents in the day and time that John was writing, it represents a day's wage. Okay, a laborer's day wage and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. So this is getting even weirder. (laughs) This third horse is black, which pretty much everywhere in scripture, every reference to black or darkness represent chaos, evil and those sorts of things. And death, affliction, it represents all of those things. So on this horse, the rider is carrying scales. They're not alligator scales, like, you know, off of flesh. They are a pair of scales. How many of you have ever seen a picture of the scales of justice? Okay, good. You know what I'm talking about then. The the two in the balance, okay? In the Old Testament, the phrase, to eat bread by weight indicates famine and lack. So in a time when there was no famine and there was no lack, you could eat as much bread as you wanted to and you didn't really have to weigh out things. You went into the market and you said, I want that whole bushel. And they said, give me a dollar. And you know everything was like happy-go-lucky. But in the Old Testament, if you ate bread by weight, that actual phrase appears several times, it meant famine and lack. And this is talking about the scales. So this is not a um, this is not me reaching because I'm going to connect it here in a second. In Leviticus twenty six twenty six, God threatens His people and tells them that if they don't listen to Him and if they break their covenant with Him, this is what He'll do. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again. By weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. Then God commissions Ezekiel. This is just two references I'll give you out of several that you can find in Scripture. But listen, 
Ezekiel's been commissioned by God to do some really strange things. You should read the book. It's, it's hard to get through. But during his prophetic ministry, God instructs Ezekiel to do some of these strange things, two of which get detailed in Ezekiel chapter 4. God is basically having the prophet act out what was going to happen to his people because of their disobedience. And he tells the prophet this. On top of, that's moreover, and in addition to, he said to me, son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. Your version may say staff of bread. This is what the original text implies is the supply will be broken. They shall eat bread by weight and with joy. No, with anxiety. Why? Because they can't get enough of it. And they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. Verse 17, I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. If you stayed home today instead of coming to celebrate church and you turned it on and ended up watching some tele-evangelist, you'd probably hear a fluffy feel-good message about five ways to improve your marriage or something like that. And we do those here too, because there are things in the Bible that apply to those things. What I want, what I'm trying to get at is this. Everything that we know about, that we don't know enough about the God we serve. We truly don't. So we need to understand God's made a covenant with his people. He set them apart and said, you be my people. Will you? I'll be your God. And they said, literally at the foot of the mountain, they said, and all you have said, we will do. They entered into the covenant with him. And now he says, if you don't obey my covenant, there are going to be consequences. So meanwhile, while the world would like to talk about God of grace, God of love, and only those things, he actually says, I'm going to let some of them rot away because of their punishment. Just to be clear, God is not messing around. (laughs) This punishment he was going to unleash not on the wicked, unbelievers. In Ezekiel, he's he's unleashing it on his own. In Leviticus, he says, this is what's coming if you don't obey me. So this is a righteous God who is judging justly. Revelation chapter 6, verse 6, we go back there. It has an interesting statement the voice that seems to be coming from the midst of the four living creatures is not a voice from the four living creatures and it's giving a qualification or a limit on what is about to happen I want you to understand this because the voice says, don't harm the oil and wine. And this seems really strange. So without doing some deeper study, you would have no idea what is going on here. But he's setting up a limitation so that the rider is not given complete access to destroy everything. I want you to understand the goodness of God is represented here. Habakkuk prays, the prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament prays a prayer in Habakkuk 3 verse 2. And he says, God, in your wrath, please remember mercy. The voice 
from the midst of the four living creatures is putting limits on this plague. There are two corresponding scholarly thoughts about the don't harm the oil or the wine phrasing. So scholars that I've read, and I do read outside of my theological background and basis, just so that you know, I don't just read stuff that backs up what I've been taught. I try to be well-versed in different strains of theology so that I can really comprehensively figure out, okay, which one is the the right one, okay? So I'm just going to give you basically scholarly opinion that I came across regarding the not harming the oil or wine, but I can't tell you this is 100% true, okay? You can do your own study, but the two corresponding thoughts are this. A drought that would cause famine, it could affect wheat, which is a shallow crop, but be limited to not be so harsh that it would affect olive trees and vineyards. Now, I looked it up. The root system of olive trees grows five to seven feet a healthy tree and healthy soil, and grapevines as deep as eight feet. Wheat, much more shallow than that. So there's a famine. This this rider is given the ability to bring drought that causes famine to wipe out the crops. If it were drought, which the word drought does not appear here, but if we're to understand what the general thought is with scholars, they believe that the drought is going to come that causes this lack or scarcity. The second related thought is necessities for living like wheat would be extremely scarce, but luxuries like wine and oil would still abound. So you might not be able to live and survive the day, but you'll sure have enough oil and wine. (laughs) We're not going to talk about drinking wine today, but search the scripture. One last thought regarding this uh, catastrophic plague, though. It will also harm the economy. So for end times preppers and all the people that buy the blood moon books and all the things like that. And I said I won't criticize other versions of the Bible. I will surely criticize the blood moon books. Okay. Listen to me. There will be economic disadvantages And a plague that is going to have ramifications when it comes to money. Because you're going to have to spend your entire day's wage for a cake of bread. Like a loaf of bread. A a little bit of flour. So it's important that you really kind of break down each of these things. The voice of God is putting a limit on this so that total annihilation is not possible. So let's recap so far. It's been such a joyful message. The rider, the first rider wages war on the earth, brings out a bow. The second rider removes peace from the earth and he brings a sword. It's really important to the placement of the sword. We're told that Jesus has a sword, okay, in different places, but his sword is coming out of his mouth in certain places in Revelation, being the word of God, okay? And then, so he comes and he brings um, his sword and removes peace from the earth and allows people to murder one another. The third now is permitted to cause this famine or shortage, this drought and, and famine. So now the fourth seal gets opened in verses seven 
and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. Okay, listen to me real quick. The reason why I said what I said about the four living creatures is because if each of the four do have any correlation to the cardinal directions of north, south, east, and west, there will not be a place on this earth outside of the view and the pouring out of God's wrath. So here's this fourth rider. Verse 8, it says this, I looked and behold a pale horse. Now, you can you could spend an entire week learning Greek and the word that they use here for pale horse. Some versions or translations actually say green. Uh, when I looked up the word, the definition for the color in the original language, uh, it can reference yellowish green. It can talk about grass with that same Greek word that's used for pale. But also it can represent pale coloring, okay, which is the color of death. I've been to funerals. I've seen some really sickly individuals. One of the reasons or one of the ways that you know that someone around you is really, really sick is their color has left them, right? You see them in a pale state. So this pale horse comes out and it's the only rider that receives or we're told has a name. Its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. Now, your, your Bible may say hell, and either of those are interchangeable. If you read the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, when you read through there, you'll find a different term called Sheol. It basically represents the place that the dead go to. So, they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. This is mind-blowing. The writer's name is death, but there's a second entity given a proper name, and that is Hades. I don't believe that this is a physical place that is being dragged behind the rider named death. I believe that we're to understand it is a personification. Okay. It personifies this entity personifies the place known as Hades, Sheol or hell. The next sentence says this and they were given. So it's either death and every resident of the afterlife that were given authority to come, which doesn't make sense, right? If we're just trying to use common sense and we're really trying to understand the word, but they were given authority. It's not the horse and the rider. The horses have no authority whatsoever. They just have different colorings to represent things. But we're, and maybe even to John, maybe John is in heaven laughing at us as we're like, white is purity and black is death. Because it's not really here in scripture. All we can do is look at that stuff and go back through God's word and try to understand what it might mean. But it can't be the horse and the rider. It's got to be death and a personification, which is called with a proper name, Hades. 
that are given the authority to go and release all of these things. There are some scholars that think that these four horsemen are released simultaneously. We're reading about them one by one, but all of them are interconnected because this fourth one basically lists the other three's jobs. Okay, So the fourth, sword, famine, pestilence, wild beast of the earth. That's a little bit of a twist, though, the wild beast of the earth, because for us, we... We don't, uh, we don't imagine that we would be attacked by wild beast. I mean, what wild beast do we have here in Mississippi? Oh, God. <laughs> God. Thanks for giving me the horrible nightmare tonight. Um, yeah, wild beasts, okay, reptilian beasts uh, here in Mississippi. But the wild beasts that roam the earth, there are plenty of them in different categories, whether they're ruminants or reptiles or whatever, uh, horned creatures, these beasts are going to roam and be allowed to slaughter. And it says this, they were given the authority over a fourth, a fourth of the earth. Now, I don't know when's the last time you looked, when is the last time that you looked at the population of the world online or statistics for America or any country. I do some weird stuff when I have to study for a message. (laughs) This week I did, okay? It would essentially be the world population today, it's growing literally by the second with births all around the world, but it is over 8 billion people. So a fourth of that currently right now in this moment, if it happened today, would be 2 billion people. I want you to understand what that looks like because you may not have a comprehension of this. So let me just help you. When I looked at the population of China in combination with the population of the United States, you still lack 181 million people. To, to get to the number 2 billion. And I know it's Sunday, and I know it's summer, and Noah, you're out of school, and you don't want to do math. So I'm trying to help you just get this picture in your head of how many people that really represents today. The entire population of China, the entirety of the United States, and you still need 181 million to fill the gap to reach 2 billion people. Both Ezekiel and Leviticus have references to these four things that are listed at the bottom of verse 8 in that order. And they're always listed as acts of God's divine wrath. Wild beasts will come and terrorize and kill children. That's, That's what they're told in the Old Testament that God will allow these sorts of things to happen because of their disobedience. If you came today looking for a joy-filled message, I'm really sorry, but here's what I'll tell you. I do have joy. I do have joy because I do know that God loves me and that I'm going to be with him. I don't know if I'm going to have to suffer some of this. I don't know if I get caught and pulled out in the middle. I don't know if I have to endure till the end like every other verse in the Bible talks about. Questioning, you know, your end time system. I don't know. But I do know this. 
I know the one who's speaking from the throne room of God. Amen. And I am confident that he loves me and that he will see me through. That's why I have joy. Because regardless of whether it's wild beast or pestilence or famine or any of these other things that have been mentioned, I know that I know that I know that the goodness of God towards his own righteous people will still be there. It will not expire. Thank you, Jesus. So since I'm out of time, we can't go into the rest of the other um, seals being broken, but I want to give you some observations, six quick notes for you to write down, put them in your phone, make sure that you understand them, study them up this week. The first one is this. This is my observation from scripture. I don't know what that was. Observation number one. Is pro- we're going to just go with it was a bird, okay? Sorry for the interruption in the audio and Facebook. Number one, Jesus is the judge. I've said it. God's word declares it. Amen. He judges righteously. He is not, I want you to understand, he's not some egomaniacal tyrant who is just willy-nilly choosing to harm people and do bad things. He is doing this because he said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. These nations have rejected him. His own people at times have rejected him. And now is the moment that we're looking at, which is, in my purview, a future moment when these things will happen. And he will be releasing the wrath of God through these different means. The second thing, and I've already said this one as well, but it's important to make sure that you write it down. There is no textual evidence in Revelation chapter 1 through 6 up until the point we're reading that say that we will be exempted, that we will not suffer. So Christians will not be exempt. How that works out in real time, I can't try to tell you. I I don't know if I understand it fully. I just know that the text doesn't support that the Christians will be exempt. So I want to make sure that you understand that. The third observation is these events are not the end or the culmination of all that God is going to unleash. These first four horsemen and riders and all the plagues and the stuff, they're merely signs leading up to the end. And you know what? The end is good. A new heaven and a new earth where the righteous will rule and reign, where there will be peace, where if I'm jumping too far ahead, I'm sorry, but the lion will lay down next to the lamb. There'll be peace like there's never been before. There will be the restoration of God's original plan at the Garden of Eden where we'll live in his presence forever. That's the good that's coming eventually. The fourth observation is this. This is really important. I'm not just making this up. These events are in the future. Now, as you study, if you pick a commentary, start looking at people's different ways that they read the word of God. If you grew up Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, all the different veins of faith and thought will have different thoughts about this. They'll talk about how there were multiple correlations to famine in John's day to people killing each other in John's day, to that kind of stuff. Listen, what we're reading 
is a holistic revolution that literally starts to revolutionize the world. This is not just talking about Nero in that day and, you know, Jews were persecuted for a short time. This is talking about global cataclysm. Okay? So even though there are multiple correlations to real-time events in the day of John's writing, it does not mean that they have been completely fulfilled. So it stands to reason that the unleashing of these four horsemen point to a future series of worldwide catastrophes. The fifth observation is this. God's wrath will devastate the whole earth. He said, well, he said, you know, the fourth rider's only got a fourth of the earth. Well, listen, two billion people, I can guarantee you, it's going to affect the whole earth. The famine, the drought, the pestilence, wild beasts, there are going to be, there is not going to be any safe place. So go ahead and buy your 60-day meal prep. (laughs) But it's going to last a little bit longer than that. Okay. I don't know what podcast you listen to. I don't know what TV you watch in the middle of the night with even the people on the Christian television being like, here, buy your 32-day supply or three-year supply or whatever. It's not going to be enough. Number six, in his wrath, I believe the testimony of Scripture from the beginning to our end is that he will remember mercy. If you remember the oil and the wine, if you think about it just being a fourth of the earth, I know it's devastating to think about it, but at least it's only a fourth, right? You have to understand there there are limits that are being set there and there's a reason for them. And I truly believe, I truly believe that in his wrath, he will remember mercy. He always has And I believe that his behavior stays the same and is consistent, and he always will. This is good news, that in his wrath, he'll remember mercy. I bet you're out there thinking, Pastor, how are you going to close this service? (laughs) It's just been such a joyful day in the house of the Lord. Listen, it is good news to those who know where they're going. The challenge for you and I is this. And I've been challenged by this specifically this week. I had an opportunity to share my faith with somebody. Shared it briefly, didn't, didn't get very far in the conversation. But the reality is this, the world around you needs to hear this good news. I know that this church today is filled with believers. I'm sure there are a few of us that may not be where we're supposed to be in our relationship with God. And I want to give you an opportunity to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus today. But for those who represent the majority here who are believers, I want you to understand when we read through the details of what is going to happen, don't you want more people saved? Don't you want them to hear the gospel? And we don't have to just put money in a bucket or give to a missionary who comes to visit our church. God has given you, and in fact, our church's vision is for you to not impact the world, but to impact your world. That means talking to your neighbors. That means talking to the person that you always see at the pharmacy or at the wherever you go and and visit. 
I'm embarrassed to say she doesn't know my name, but the lady at the donut shop knows my order. Okay. You want your usual? I only go once a week. My I put across my heart before God. Okay, I only go once a week. But she says, You want your, your usual? I've got an opportunity, even in the moment of an early morning rush, to minister God's word to her. And I need to be challenged to do that more so than I do. And that's what I'm getting at. That's what I really think that God wants you to do is on your word. Pastor, I'll get fired if I start preaching at my job. I didn't say go preaching at your job. I said use the relationships that you have and let them lead to life everlasting. Speak the gospel. Stand with me today. Speak the truth of God's word when given the opportunity. Pray for opportunities to give God's word to others. I want you to do this today. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Let's just take a moment of reverence in his presence. If you're new here or it's your first time, don't worry. We're not going to do a whole nother set of worship songs and another message. But we want to give you this opportunity to just enter into God's presence. There may be the challenge of evangelism that I gave you, but it might be something totally different that the Holy Spirit has to say and deal with your heart today. Maybe it's unrepentant sin, something that you need to uh, be forgiven for. Maybe it's uh, something that you lack in your life that you need God's provision for, whatever that is. We often pray this prayer, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? I want you to pray that in your heart today, even with your mouth if you choose to. And allow God to speak to you. And then I implore you to obey whatever you hear. God, I thank you for Celebrate Church. I thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, I thank you that even in the midst of devastation, there's still hope. Lord, in the midst of whatever devastating circumstance we currently face ourselves in this life, we know that you are good and that your mercy endures forever. So God, I pray today that you would set free, that you would help, that you would heal, that you would deliver. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Dexter, I've never received Jesus or I've walked away from him. I I knew him as a child or as a young adult, but I'm not walking with the Lord. And you say, today is the day I want to come to Christ, whether it's for the very first time or if it's a moment of repentance and coming back to him like the prodigal son. Would you just slip up your hand wherever you are? Anyone here? If that's you, we want to pray with you today.